0: Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to that Anthro
1: podcast.
0: And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: Hi, Adam. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, For our listeners, the name Adam Gamwell may ring a few bells because he has actually been the host of This Anthro Life, an extremely popular podcast for seven years now, which is insane to me. So I'll turn it over to Adam um, to kind of further explain about your podcast generally and like what types of guests and subjects you dive into on This Anthro Life.
1: Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Gabby. It's, it's, uh, It's a pleasure to be here um or have a bi-coastal recording that we're doing right now which is cool so pleasure to be here online with you and and i also i also appreciate your three-word podcast name it's it's the way to go i think it's three Mm -hmm. three words just bounce off the tongue really easily um and also wise to shorten anthropology to anthro it's funny when we we first made this anthro life it was this anthropological life which takes way more time to say Mm -hmm. um you know and then and then just over time it was like anthro just it just feels a little bit better uh yeah. But so, so as you, as you noted, I've been doing the podcast for seven years now, which is, which is crazy. That's a long time. It's uh, as long as a graduate degree. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's interesting that the show has changed a number, uh, a number of ways over the years, but just in a broad sense, the kinds of guests we have uh, would be uh, anthropologists, as, as one can imagine, you know, um, which could be professors of anthropology, could be graduate students, um we've had internal conversations between myself and different co-hosts that we've had over the years have probably worked with six or seven different co-hosts um all different kinds of anthropologists from you know cultural anthropologists to archaeologists to bioanthropologists uh to linguistic experts and uh subjects is pretty anything under the sun more or less um when we originally started doing the show it was we would pick a topic like beer or dreams uh or burning man and basically, you know, say today's this week, we're doing Burning Man and have a, either a friend that has gone to Burning Man, come talk about it and or we just kind of internally do some research and talk about garbage. Um, and, and so basically, it's kind of a follow your nose series of episodes. And, uh, you know, today, it's a, it's a little different where it's, it's mostly a guest focused show. And so it's, it's me talking with, with guests. And so uh, it's often basically what they're working on or if they have a new book out or something like that. So it's been it's been a shift over the years, but it's been it's been super fun. One way to think about it for me is that TAL now kind of aims to capture that feeling when you hear somebody say, oh, anthropology, that was my favorite class in college. I only took one, but it's the class I'm always going to remember. You know, that that's the vibe that, that I want to kind of bring out with, with, this, with this show.
0: I love that. And, you know, I haven't listened to any of those earlier episodes where it's, like you said, kind of like a group of you and your friends. But mm. honestly, you should bring those back and do like, you know, uh, a, like, a, I don't know how many people would you originally do it with. Like two um, or three? three of us. Yeah, two oh, or three. Okay. You should bring that back, but like we can do it like online and then pick a subject and then just dive into something. That'd be fun. Totally. Yeah. yeah
1: we can, we can, we can do it. We can do a, this anthro live version mm-hmm. of that. Right.
0: It's something ever since the panel that you and I did together, which I'll bring up later for anyone that's like interested in watching it. I loved that experience. You know, it was my first panel and it's, I really think the idea of having like a live streamed rather than like a physically live, like, you know, at a conference or something, it's just mm-hmm. so unique. And like, it really brings so many different people and different, like diverse thoughts. I really loved it. And so I'm totally, I've been like ever since then planning, like how to, how to do something next, but also school is like keeping me on my toes. We're back to the first week, <laughs> back to the first week of classes. And the registrar is trying to drop me out of two of my classes. What what is is the deal? registrar, you're mean.
1: <laughs> Hashtag yeah. save Gabby. An- yeah. Anthropology does have to fight. Actually, I mean, when I was in graduate school too, there was a, a moment when we were going through an economic recession. Mm. Put, folks might remember from 2008 up until you know 2016. Um, and at the time, the, the university, when we were doing our master's went to, to Brandeis University, um, they were trying to find ways to save money. And they were like considering cutting the anthro graduate program. While well, everyone's I, in the it,
0: middle of their graduate studies. Yes.
1: Right, and one of our our colleagues, she was doing her PhD at the time. She had put uh, <laughs> she had put signs in the windows that said Department of Low Hanging Fruit uh, <laughs> as a protest, which is good. We didn't get cut. Well,
0: clearly, it's like you're here today with your degree, Um, (laughs) which I actually think is a good transition, like, you know, your educational background, and I've heard you call this anthro life, a form of like graduate school therapy. So Mm -hmm. you said you were attending graduate school at Brandeis. Um, What kind of were you studying? And like, how do you kind of label yourself in anthropology? What do you study and focus your research on?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, It's it's funny. So you know, obviously, I I do a podcast, and so um, the the way that we'll talk about this and kind of tell my story is that it's like a parallel lives, but parallel learnings. You know, both in terms of doing the graduate research and what I did for graduate school, and then the podcast, and so they'll they'll weave in together. Um, But so on on the academic side, uh, I I, you know did both my master's and my PhD at Brandeis University, which is outside of Boston and Massachusetts, and I uh, my PhD. Uh, was focused on like geographically in the Andes, like Peru, and you know, and in mm. and, uh, the Andes Mountains. It could be also be you know Bolivia and parts of southern Colombia and Ecuador. Um, but I was focused in Peru, and on food. And so when I when I first started doing PhD research, uh, I was actually studying transnational shepherds <laughs> and sheep rearing, wow. and uh, and which is interesting, right? And yeah. so there's actually one of these. I don't I don't remember the statistic anymore, but uh, it was something like you know, at least seventy five percent of the the sheep and mutton raised in the United States is raised by Peruvians, and that kind of blew my mind. And that and that most of them are migrant shepherds that come up and down from Peru back to the U.S. Um, and basically live by themselves in the Western United States um, with like up like one guy, a shotgun, a jeep, and two thousand sheep. You know, wow. and this really interesting like very kind of quiet and isolating existence and that was kind of interesting just in terms of like how does how does food and food chains bring people together like this uh and then I was having trouble kind of connecting because it's how do you how do you find a shepherd out in the middle of Wyoming you know um not impossible and especially if some of these these you know migrants don't speak English very well and some of them don't speak Spanish that well too they might speak Quechua, for example Mm. and so in 2012 2013 um, when I started I started PhD in 2013 my graduate program said, you should go to Peru to learn Quechua or at least learn some of it to get started. And I said, that sounds cool. Uh, and so I, you know, kind of booked my first, you know, graduate field trip down to Peru and uh, enrolled in a Quechua language program in Cusco. And while I was there, I was trying to develop some context and just see what was happening kind of on the land. And uh, my the house mother that I, I lived with, she said, you should go to this city called beauty It's about two to four hours south. And, uh, they're, they're, shepherds. That's a shepherding area of, of Southern Peru. Okay. So I got on a bus and went down there and, and was trying to figure out how do I find shepherds here, which is also quite difficult. Um, and it was a very interesting time because I, I was living with the host family and I had classmates and I was learning Quechua and Cusco. And it was like, Cusco is one of those cities that you've probably at least heard of Machu Picchu. That's how you get to Machu Picchu. So a lot of tourists, a lot of like you know, quote unquote Western or foreign influences as part of it that really mix and a lot of like hippies go there. So it on one level felt like home. Uh, but then when, it, when I went to Ida it like hit me. I was like, this is you, you're the white dude. You're like a foot taller than most other people. And you're the only person that doesn't speak Spanish that well at all here, <laughs> you know? Um, and it was like this very interesting moment of c- culture shock. And it's an important part of being an anthropologist, I think, to have this, this happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I was, I was, Trying to, you know, basically poke around in this this small city and, and see where I could I could meet some shepherds. And I, I wasn't really finding anybody because I no, also this makes sense. The shepherds are out doing shepherd work. They're not like yeah. hanging out in Iaveri. In so I'm like, hold on, house house mother, good start. But like, how do I get to the next part? Um, so I was just walking around the, the city one day and then I and I stumbled upon a a quinoa production house, little, little plant. And you know, I was there to study food and quinoa had been in my, in my head. Cause again, studying food, like superfoods was something that was kind of like in ringing in my head of the, something else that might be interesting to look at. And Peru is known for being a superfood hub of the world.
0: Yeah. and um, Quinoa was domesticated there and, you know, can only be grown above like 6,000 feet. It's super interesting.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy plant. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, that little light bulb said, okay, we'll go check out what's happening. Uh, see, see if they'll talk to you. And um so basically I I walked in and you know said I'm an I'm an anthropologist and I'm studying food and I'm interested in this. And they just said, come on in. And they like invited me to stay with them. And I was like, there's something, something here, you know, I'm having trouble yeah. finding shepherds, and quinoa invited me in. So maybe we'll go here. Um, and and that kind of basically helped set my path forward in terms of what I studied. So so that the, ultimately for my research, I did, I did work on quinoa conservation and commercialization. And um, basically how different forms of knowledge, basically indigenous scientists, um, agricultural scientists, international NGOs, government agencies, how all these different groups work together, like in what forces shape how we produce quinoa and for what reasons? Is it for conservation? Is it for commercialization? Um, but something else that that uh, is important about why this path happened this way is that um, when I kind of found my way looking into this, I, I realized that this kind of work, I wasn't comfortable just doing a traditional ethnography in terms of, let me just go do a study and then I'm gonna pop back and and that's it. Especially because if we're looking at working with marginalized populations, um, there's always power differentials that we have to account for. But then on top of that, like working with quinoa for questions of commercialization and conservation has implications for things like climate change and environmental resilience. And so I, I wanted to find a way to do work that would have an impact beyond my own study. And uh, serendipity happens in funny ways when you're kind of open to it, you know. And, Definitely. Uh, I was literally just looking at, you know, quinoa articles, and and I found this one little two page article that was, you know, didn't have any citations on it. It was just like, here's facts about quinoa production in Peru, and it was interesting. So, and at the bottom, uh, it said, "Email this person if you want to know more about the citations." And I said, "Yeah, it's weird that they're not there." <laughs> so, so I'm I trying to imagine
0: like an article. Yeah, yeah that would be weird.
1: You're like, huh. I mean, it wasn't a journal article. It was just like some, you know, oh, some pamphlet yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. It would be, if it's a journal article, I'd be like, what, what journal is this? <laughs> um, you know, but then I, I saw emailed and uh, it was, it was part of an, a, a publication for an NGO or a, a, sorry, a research for development nonprofit called Bioversity International. And uh, so I met the, the director of the program that works on food conservation in a number of countries and told you know, told them what I was doing and looking to do. And I'm going to Peru in a few months. And he was like, "We need help doing research. Do you want to come do stuff with us?" And then I was like, "Yeah." yeah. And so the Kima <laughs> doors kept going and, and said, "You should come do these things." Um, and and so then it was like I could I could link up with with a you know research for development nonprofit. So like they were already doing work for again development work for conservation, uh, and and it also opened up this really interesting uh, sort of bifurcation of what we do education for, um, and. On one level, it's like you know when we go do field work, whether it is for biological anthropology, for archaeology, for um, for cultural anthro, uh, you know, there's there's like the research that we have to do that's part of our graduate education. Like you're you know, like if you go to graduate school, even if you're doing a thesis now for undergrad, like you have to say, here's my goals, here's what I'm going to go do, and here's what I'm going to produce and bring back um, from the field, um, and that has to happen. But at the same time, when you're working with a partnership, you know, like if you're working with a, an archaeological firm or like a local government or local group. Um, they have their needs too right and so then you have this you have to kind of balance what these different organizations need and that was a interesting and challenging thing to kind of mix because uh as a cultural anthropologist you know it was, it was a bit of like what are my dissertation requirements but then also how does the NGO get what they need out of this too um and so it's a bit of a bit of back and forth in terms of like how I ended up doing this kind of the study work but um yeah. So, so quinoa really became this thing. So it was fun. It was a, a hipster dissertation, I guess, you know, on one level in terms of looking at uh, these different processes. Um, and, you know, and, and it was super fun to, to kind of realize that uh, simple examples that the different names for different kinds of quinoa, like if you go shopping in the grocery store, we go to Whole Foods or something, we can see there's black quinoa and red quinoa and white quinoa. Right. Um, but in, in Peru, there's like 26 different Kinds you can get. There's a ton of different varieties. I got to go hang out in like seed banks and gene banks and see thousands and thousands of different genetic accessions of quinoa. And I have like 15 kinds here at my house, just little sample jars, all different colors, super crazy. And and, then just to realize to your point, like they can grow in different altitudes. Um, It grows in crappy and salty and saline soils. Um, You know, and and there are some varieties that can grow at sea level. There's some that can grow at super high, Mm -hmm. like, you know, know, um, 12,000 feet up is where I did most of my research in in Puno and the Altiplano. And so it's just such a, I don't know, super fascinating plant, uh, and an arena of just these, you know, super with-it farmers. You know, they, they're like, yeah. um, they're both incredibly humble, but so knowledgeable. And uh, and you know, they have these, you know, they exhibit these qualities that that we, you know, we I think wistfully look towards in the West of like, oh, you could look at that and recognize the soil and the quality of this and that, and like, you know, some of these kind of hippie values. Um, even though they themselves are not hippies. And so it's interesting to like also just put these pieces into the equation of how do we think about how conservation should happen, right? What are we looking for? Um, and also what does that mean for the people that are doing it? What does like how does it affect their well-being, for example?
0: yeah, um, how does how does it affect like the life ways of the people actually producing quinoa? And I think also then, like, in turn, like asking for what they want out of it, you know, as the quinoa farmers themselves, like what are what are what did they want in that industry of like because I'm assuming most of them are like selling, you know, selling it, not just like consuming mm-hmm. it just for their family. Um, that's right, yeah. So I'm curious, like, how the podcast became kind of therapeutic during your grad school journey, and it sounds like you were pretty busy you know, how did, like, you end up starting it through, through all of the, you know, writing a thesis and dissertation process?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it's, so the, the podcast began in 2013. And so that was, I began PhD in 2012. And so then basically within that first year, around the first year, I started working on it. And in part, it was because, you know, me and two of my classmates at the time, we would find ourselves hanging out at the bar or something after class, and be talking about something that we read that day, you know, Marx's theory of dialectical materialism or something, or, um, you know, Franz Boas's historical particularism. And one thing to know about me is that I really love anthropological theory. Like I love the $500 words that we come up with, like the super expensive sounding phrases, like they're both ridiculous and also just really fun. I think, um, they're but
0: ridiculous. Not,
1: they're ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even, even edict, hard to say this, emic and edict, right. The sort of insider outsider perspective, like mm-hmm. the fact that we say emic and edict is ridiculous, you know, yeah. it's, it's cool. But um anyway, so like, so, so I love, I love that kind of stuff, but what is not cool is that it's so hard to explain what these things are um in, in a quick and easy way. And so the first like level of therapy in, in this case was that how can we have a conversation around these really interesting topics or really interesting ways that we are are understanding what it means to be human or understanding how to understand humans. Again, even this idea of like the emic and edic insider and outsider perspective, what does it mean to do that? Or what does it mean to, uh, you know, unpack the idea? And we're not even going to go here, but like Bruno Latour's idea that we've never been modern. Like we don't have a separation between like a subject and an object, the way that we think we do. Like that's, super deep philosophy, but like at the same time, it's really interesting to contemplate. Yeah. Wait, we think that we're like qualitatively different from, from quote unquote, ancient humans, but we're not. Uh, And why is that? Why do we think that we're somehow the Europeans are somehow like more advanced quote unquote than -hmm. other people's right. What, why is that? Um, And that's really hard to unpack quickly. And so on one level, the podcast gave us an opportunity to explore those questions in a conversational format and, you know, the helpful part is like being at a bar was, was, you know, you have a beer, you have a libation. We occasionally say, Hey, that's a great, that's a great way of saying that we should totally, we should have recorded that. Um, and so then we, we basically just decided to do that. And uh, we, we went and, and parked ourselves at the Brandeis radio station and got, you know, certified to use the board and got Ooh. a slot for a weekly show and, um and just started doing it. And so it was really just a, a, a you know kind of a proof of concept. Let's just let's just have a conversation once a week, you know. And it was helpful to again just to have like a schedule like this is this is whatever time it was, you know, changed every semester. And um, and that became really important for that in terms of that it was it was a, a new kind of way of building an identity around having conversational anthropology. Um, and that made that made a big difference to me. Uh, the the therapy side of it actually changed as graduate school went on. And so this is not a warning story to people that are gonna go to graduate school if you're interested in it. But like, I I personally think that that graduate school is, uh, like the intellectual precision that anthropology requires is super exciting and incredibly exhausting. Um, And I think that uh, graduate school is unnecessarily hard or difficult on people and it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, um, for I mean, one simple example is I'm actually a really slow reader and that's very frustrating, especially in graduate school. you know, cause you you got to read a ton of stuff all the time. And it's just like, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. And like, that didn't make sense to me. Cause it's like, I can work on theories. I can work on the ideas and I can, we can put things together, but just like, I can't read 400 pages every few days, you know, or I can't yeah. do that and sleep.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no,
1: you know, I can't do that
0: and focus on and engage with what I'm reading. Like, yes. there's no way I could read too. the 400 pages, but I'm not going to remember or like retain any of it.
1: Right you know and then in like the, the we even get taught things like you know this is how you can skim this or like pay attention to that and i'm like then what's the point of having a 400 page book you know if if the point is to skim it then give me the cliff notes you know um so you know again not not to hate on graduate school at all but like but yeah there, there's there's issues that, that we i think we like anthropology and i think graduate life and academia in general is doing some important soul searching right now mm-hmm. and it should yeah be.
0: it's a uh, it's there's some flaws and i really hope that you know we're like working them out because definitely not not a perfect system right now <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah. No, hundred percent, you know. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's these issues, you know, but there's other things like, you know, there's, there's the stress of getting paid, nothing, um, or being very paid, very low. Um, yeah. there's this culture of overachievement, like both among students and faculties, you gotta, you gotta be, you want to be the best. And there's always that one or two people in the department. That's always like doing way too good. And you're like, how is this even happening? Mm-hmm. Um, future job uncertainty, you know, and, and like career guidance is tricky. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how it is now for, and I know not every school is the same and I'm, so I'm not saying this is bad on Brandeis, but just like, you know, most professors only know how to teach you to go to academia. And that wasn't, I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. And so it was really tricky to find other, other outlets or ways of figuring out who to talk to and who to figure that out with. And so for me, podcasting was a little bit of a reprieve from these kinds of pressures, um, but then also gave this space to explore uh, other kinds of, of avenues of, of conversations. And, you know, I don't know how early on, how people found the show, but we would get folks reaching out to us. Um, I was, I mean, Andy Simon, who is a, is a colleague, a longtime colleague now, she's a, a really wonderful corporate anthropologist. She's, she's had her own practice for years. Um, and early on in our show, she reached out to, to be a guest on it. And that was, in, that was super validating for us because it was a business. I didn't even know what business anthropology was. You know, this is like 2014, and um, you know, so to have a business anthropologist say, "Hey, I'd love to talk on your show," we're like, "Wait, okay, hold on." There's other conversations out there that are happening that we don't even know about. You know, as Mm -hmm. as as naive as that sounds, right? Um, And so there was a huge validation of like that this is happening, and part of this. Remember, this is 2014, so this is before Serial, the podcast came out, which is from This American Life. So podcasting wasn't this really mainstream thing. Like right now, it's like. talking before we were recording about, we both love Dak Shepard and an armchair expert, like celebrities have podcasts now, which you think about it is the epitome of like, we've Americanized this thing. Right. Um, and, but, but aside from that, like, you know, so this wasn't really a a super well-known thing. So, um, we hadn't thought about things like marketing or thought about like, how do we get the show to grow? Right. How do we help people find it? Besides we have a radio show. Um, and so, there was all these avenues that began to open up because of this, this medium that we, we just decided to play with. And so um, for me, again, there was, I don't know. So it's, it's like a, a very windy therapy, but it's, it's yeah. provided again, this like sense of identity and career development that has grown with me um, in, in ways that academia wouldn't or, or couldn't do. And that, that was just important for me to be able to um, you know, be able to explore and and, be, and have fun and be creative um, in this, in this way. So yeah, I think that's, that's my therapy. <laughs>
0: That's great. I have a quick armchair expert question for you. Um, Every time Dax brings up that he has an anthropology degree, I'm like, Dax, we all know, God bless your little heart, that you were out, out of your mind, drunk or high the entire time. And like, he'll bring up these little anthro things. And he's always very accurate when he does bring them up. But I always just kind of sigh when he goes, well, yeah, I have an anthropology degree and I'm all come on, Dax. <laughs>
1: you're, yeah. You're like mm. okay, Really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: you really mm. <laughs> Which is not to discredit like his intellect because he is like a very intelligent person. It's also like he gotta be a BA probably 30 years ago and he's now that maybe 20 years ago I don't know how old he is and now he's like a parent so so he brings it up and I'm always oh Dax come on no let's not let's not
1: I know it's like you probably get more dose of anthropology now reading medium than you did from your degree 20 years ago you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) how have your goals and episode structure kind of changed throughout these seven years and 137 episodes I looked it up that's Craziness. I mean, I'm just like this episode with you will be my 36th. Hey, so
1: the idea.
0: Of, thank you. So the idea of you know being in the hundreds is insane for me. Where do you kind of see it progressing in the future?
1: Yeah. Um. Just a side note, it's like 150 episodes. Oh, but now. Back in yeah. the, no, no, no. You no, you're fine. You're not wrong. It's just because that's how many episodes exist online. Because oh. just it's, this is a warning for podcasters. Um old formats will cut off episode numbers after a while. And so I have to go, I have to go find the old episodes actually. So you're actually, you're, you're totally correct from what you see. Um, but like WordPress, like cut off the episodes a while ago, which is very strange. Oh, that's um, interesting. This is a totally unnecessary parenthetical site. But um, uh, yeah, so so the show has has changed um, a number of ways in terms of, you know, originally it was three of us, three graduate students working on the show. Um, and then it moved to two. And then it it just became me, uh, and and this is in part because I love podcasting. Like the, this medium matters to me as a thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and my other colleagues, like they're both great, Ryan Collins and Neil Trabothu, who started the show. Um, they both are going on and doing their own great things. Um, you know, Ryan's an archaeologist, and Neil's an economic anthropologist, and they're um, and Neil's doing a, they're both actually both doing really cool postdoc work right now. Um, and you know, like. I guess podcasting is like my version of a postdoc, you know? Um, and so it's just, it's the thing that I wanted to, I wanted to keep going with. Like it's, it's this kind of work I love. Um, and so in part it's changed because, you know, the, the hosts have changed, you know, it's now me from the original team, but uh, you know, the, the show has really kind of followed my career interests on one level. Like again, it began these old school episodes, um, as we said before, of like three of us kind of talking about garbage or, or commuting uh, to now it's, uh, you know, the a real focus has been on, on how do we demonstrate the value of anthropological thinking and doing to folks um, out, out in the world, you know, and, uh, to today it's, it's that also, but then it's really just, uh, you know, also sometimes I might be the only anthropological connection on the show. Like I don't, I don't always have anthropologists on the show. I'll have a cyber psychologist, or I had a neuromarketer, um, team, like a neuroscientist and a marketer, um, come on. Um, I have anthropologists also, but, uh, it's it's been really interesting to sometimes when like challenge yourself to be the anthropologist in the room and then help others see why an anthropological perspective is interesting or useful. You know, I, ju- I just did a recording for an episode that will come out probably after this one airs, um, with a, a, a CEO and like a, a career coach and uh, the founder of this really great company called Maker Kids that's about teaching kids coding and social skills together. Um, she's not an anthropologist. And when we first started talking, um, she was talking like, you know, a little skepticism of why is this like, why are we on anthropology kind of show? And it was a really, it was a really cool conversation to think about how does anthropology help us inform these kinds of questions um, in the way that we approach other kinds of business and other kinds of work. So um, for me, it's like this really exciting piece of, of letting other kinds of groups of people in, in, in industries and organizations see the value of anthropological thinking and doing out in the world. Um, I mean, the caveat with this too is like, so I have... Since finishing PhD, I have, um, we'll talk a bit about teaching in, in, in a little bit, I think, but like um, I have worked as an independent consultant and, uh, you know, and I currently work in consumer research and industry now. And because of that, so I I kind of work on the other side of the fence anyway. So I'm, I'm kind of in these both worlds. And so part of the goals of the shows have shifted because... Uh, a lot of people began asking me conversations and questions uh, across like, how did you do that? how did you make that career move? How did you get from academia to this? And, and I realized that like for myself too, like I had to figure this out and kind of wade through the darkness and find other people that had done it before me. And so for me, one of the goals of the podcast now is to help people understand their career options as anthropologists, right? That there's so much kind of work that we can do, which is super exciting and awesome. Uh, and industries want anthropologists, like they want archaeologists, they want cultural anthropologists, they want bioanthro uh, thinkers. I mean, there is there is like things that we know, like museum work and nonprofits and NGOs and academia, of course. But I mean, there's consumer research, there's user experience. Uh, I mean, anthropologists can do anything, what people eat in their homes hmm. and like how they talk about the food, but what they actually keep in their home. From 2005, and I, e- I messaged her, I was like, hey, I found this article from 2005. She's like, what? I, and you know, how'd you even find that? And I was like, I was doing research for something else. And so I didn't know that she did that. So to me, I was like, you're even more of a celebrity because you do work for Oprah, you know, yeah. like super cool. And so to just realize like anthropology can is everywhere and ethnography is needed in all industries and in all mm-hmm. things for media, for everything. So um, a lot of my goal is is that, you know, is to like help um, bring that excitement and show people that it is it is everywhere, right? It's not just a, what is, what is this degree? What can you do with this degree? It's like, I'm just going to point to the podcast and say, go here, pick an episode. That's what you can do with it, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put, you know, kind of like summarize your podcast, because I definitely think that that's what it does. And I'm actually in um, a, like a graduate prep course right now where we're doing things like, you know, making a CV, get it, you know, a statement of purpose and, you know, being able to peer edit, but also having the teacher to kind of give us suggestions. And, you know, in like the group message, people were feeling like a little bit down about how COVID had kind of delayed you know, some of their expectations for how their year would have gone. And I like really was lucky that I kind of started like internships and field work, like right from freshman year, for whatever reason, it ended up working out well, but I kind of had that like bug right away. And other people, you know, they found anthropology in college. I was super lucky. I came in, I knew exactly wanted to, what I want to do. So I kind of hit the ground running, hmm. but you know, some of them were asking me about how to find like opportunities, how to do all these things. And I was like, honestly, you have to go out and look for them. Like, I know that yeah. sounds, that sounds intimidating and it sounds kind of stupid, but I said, do a Google search. Like Mm -hmm. we love Google. That's a great place to start. I recommended some podcasts. I said, you know, we're in the age of like, you know, social media and there are so many other ways to find mentors or people to interview or people that you can want advice from other than just like the, the limited, but still nice, you know, faculty and staff. We have it here at UCSB and, um, Also, you know, learning about alternative career paths, like you were saying from the traditional like academia, I've Mm -hmm. really been, I'm trying to like champion that to this class. I'm like, come on, because I feel like our teacher, not like necessarily in a bad way, like a lot of, because she isn't in academia, a lot of like the track for her in her vision, like, is, you know, academia, PhD, but yeah. So I hope maybe I can further, you know, I already put the link to your, Forensic anthro episode on my friends yeah. anthropology class page. So everyone could listen to that one. She was really interesting. Yeah,
1: Lily White is great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She was cool. And I loved like the special cover art that you did for that episode with like the coffin and the spider web. I was like, yeah. oh, I love <laughs> <of> it.
1: <laughs> little, little shout out that that's actually uh my one of my interns, Sarah Schmidter, came up with that. So shout out to Sarah.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I've been so like lucky to collaborate with like one other student artist. And as someone who is not very artistic, I'm always just blown away with like what people put together and come up with. It's really, really It so is. Cool. It is fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, I mean, it's a cool thing too, because it's like uh, podcasting is an audio medium, but at the same time, like, Hey, you can do a video, but then you cannot like there's show art. There's like so many other sort of sensorial aspects of it that you can play with that are that like, give it an extra boost of it. It's a creative enterprise, you know, which, is, sure. which is cool. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also always just,
0: fun to collaborate with others.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I just want to say, I, I applaud that you're helping try to get the class to think a little bit outside of, of the box. Yeah. It's important. It's, it's really important mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And like, and it is hard because it's like, we don't, we don't see outside our purview. Right. So we don't know yeah. where else to look. So, so you're, you're doing, you're doing the Lord's work there.
0: <laughs> thank you <laughs> and it's the first time that ucsb is offering this class in quite a while so i think it'll kind of be nice i'm sure we'll we will all learn and be able to give the instructor feedback you know to continue it as a like class for future it's designed for like junior seniors you know as they're going to grad school cool um so moving back to podcast things what else is going on with you what other prod Projects or podcasts are you working on? Because I know you have a lot of irons in the fire.
1: That's that's a good website name, irons in the fire. <laughs> see if that's available. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, kind of like what I what I said before is that podcasting itself has been super important to me, both as a career move and just again something that I love doing. And so, um, to give like a, a, a quickish overview, like I. Uh, When I came back from fieldwork in 2016, I decided to like professionalize podcasting. I was like, I'm like, I'm interested in this as a career path, I think, but just like as as just like, what does it mean to professionalize this kind of work? So, a couple things um, was that I really basically said, I'm. This is not to say this is a bad thing. I'm not. I'm not going to claim this, but like, I basically, I'm going to stop talking about myself as a student. And a podcaster, and just say I'm a podcaster. Um, It's fine that I'm a student too, but that doesn't really matter. That's not that's not the identity of me as a podcaster in this case, and um, and so I I just like contemplated what would that look like, you know. And it it actually looks the same, (laughs) but um, you know, it's just like I wouldn't say it's a student podcast, for example, you know. And uh, in part because then if I met new people, like if I meet uh, someone at at the academy, it doesn't really make a difference, right? But it's like. Uh, if you meet someone that's outside of it, it, it sounds different to say uh, I'm a podcaster versus I'm a student podcaster, right? Or I'm a, it's like, I'm a student pilot versus I'm a pilot. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and so that changed a bit of my mentality. And so I started networking like crazy. And that's when I started figuring out things like email marketing and, and, and like letting people know about the show. And so around this time, you know, 2017, 2018 is when I, um, ourselves and actually another another podcast that was out of osu called the story of us we were the two founding members of the american anthropological associations like podcast network the AAA network uh and so that there was moments like this that were like this validation of like okay like the big dogs are looking at us and saying hey you guys mm-hmm. let's do a thing together right yeah
0: um i love and partnering was, with them they're awesome yeah
1: they're the best you know and, and it's been like and so jeff martin that works with them and ed levo um and leslie walker who was there at the time he's now at the smithsonian um you know there was like a lot of really like kind folks that like they've said, y'all are doing the good work. Let's, let's find ways to help promote these, these pieces of anthropology together. Um, and, you know, recognizing that there's many ways to be anthropologists and that was, those super validating. And so from that uh, basically I got a incredible opportunity in 2018 to um, do a project with the AAA and the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. And normally AAA has done this. Uh, they've done a couple of different things. They've done traveling exhibitions for the Folklife Festival um, they've done one that was called world on the move 100,000 years of migration that like talked about, you know, human evolution and, and change over time. But also like that, the idea is like, we've always been a migratory species. We've never been, I'm an American, right? Not a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so they wanted to try something different in 2018. And so uh, they, they basically pitched uh, to, to me and, and to story of us. Like, do y'all want to do a podcast thing? And I was like me in the Smithsonian and AAA podcast. The answer is yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so uh it turns out a story of us wasn't able to do it. So I took I got to use their slot too. So I got to I got to go to DC for two weeks with AAA, so leslie Walker and myself. We did two weeks of interviews with Smithsonian Folklife Festival mm-hmm. participants, um, and we made a five-part mini-series that we ultimately called Culture Made uh Um you know, Heritage in a World on the Move. And uh, and that year they had folks from, from Armenia and Catalonia, as well as, uh, crafts of African fashion festival. And so super awesome, like incredible event, like, and, and it, um, kind of blew my mind that we were able to do this. And so then we put together this five-part series that, uh, was awesome, but kicked my butt because normally like, like you do like we do interview podcasts like this and it takes time to edit one of these. Right.
0: Mm, as, yeah. as we
1: both know, um, that was like, you know, two weeks worth of interviews, um, And then come back and then my goal was to make it more NPR-ish. And so it's like, let's have multiple voices per episode with music and transitions and segments. Damn, like that took a, like one episode that was like an hour, it took me like, you know, a month and a half to make, you know, and it really taught me a lot about, okay, this is what it's like to make an actual show. Like not that our shows are not actual shows, but to like to make a produce thing takes Uh, a lot of
0: work. Yeah. Transitions really, yeah. Understandable.
1: Yeah um but also like incredibly empowering and to be like okay i could do this you know um and i mean now like the show is not super super well made but it was my it was my my first baby that was like this produced show you know um but then that also made me realize that i'm doing more than just this anthro life like this anthro life was now this this first thing and it still exists but then we have got culture made which is like a tal joint but it's not the same thing um but it kind of lit the fire of like let's do some more podcast stuff you know and so um I did that and then that got me interested in in what's happening in podcast land. And so um, I would a few times would go do a, or attempt to do like a presentation or paper or a panel or whatever at a, at a AAA conference or a SFAA society for applied anthro conference. And you'd always get like lukewarm reception. Like people were like, okay, you know, cool podcast paper, you know, like there, nobody cared and that, that was okay. Like they don't have to care but, um, nobody was super interested in that, So I was like, why don't, why, why don't anthropologists care about podcasting? You know? Um, I mean, some do, but like, but then I would go to, so I, I they said, fine, let me go to podcast conferences and talk about anthropology and people are like so into it. And it was like, Oh, okay. That's I'm doing it backwards. Uh, and so, you know, I, I started doing things where I'd, I'd go speak at podcast conferences. Um, I helped organize one here in Boston that's called Sound Education for the second year. That's like a, a festival of educational audio. And, you know, that's through that, I got to, got to meet a, a ton of, you know, folks that work at NPR and WGBH and like the shows that you've heard of, um, got to meet people that, that were working on these. And that was like an, a, a super interesting opportunity as well as like here in, in attending podcast events and workshops and I joined a community um, here, that's put on by PRX, is also in Boston, which is the public radio exchange, which is like not an NPR competitor, but they, they're they both like high level public radio uh, producers. And like through that, I, I met a community and I started working on a, a show called Fascina, uh, invited to work on it by my colleague, Eloisa Barboza, who is uh, Brazilian. And she, uh, my wife is also Brazilian. So I, I'm, I'm learning Portuguese or have been for a while. And, uh, and so I met Eloisa one time at, at a podcast event. And so she asked me if I wanted to help her produced this show she's working on called Fashina that was just accepted into the Google Podcast Creator Program, which is an international competition they do every year. 5,000 applicants, they pick nine teams, um, and Fascina was selected. And so three of us joined up to make this. It's a Portuguese language narrative podcast that's on par of what you hear on NPR with music transitions, narration voices um, that tells basically the hidden stories of domestic workers that traveled from Brazil to the U.S. to, to, to do work. Um, it's an incredible show, and I worked on season one with them. They're on season two now. I had to step away because it's like it's insane amount of work. Um, I'm, I'm super proud of them. But like, um, and so so working on that was also incredibly rewarding and difficult to do something in a second language yeah. or a third third language at this point. Wow. Um, you know, but but to see that and then also to see again, Google was interested in that kind of work and, and getting to meet again the PRX team and, and meet folks that are at these echelons that are like making public radio happen. Uh, it's it's interesting. to say like, this is where I get super excited about. This is where podcasting and anthropology can go. Um, I also co-host a show right now with with a sociologist and a consultant named Gary David the, the show is called experience by design. That's basically about our love of experience design and um, similar, similar to this, like it's a conversational interview show um, pretty casual, but it's, it's cool to see the audiences are different between that and this anthro life. If you look at stats um, you know, And so it's, it's cool to realize we're reaching different, different kinds of folks. And that's a much more of a business show. Again, Mm -hmm. I also wanted to do that because it helps me learn business and it's a language that I want to learn more of, you know, um, I have done independent production stuff. I I just, um, worked on a, over the past two years, I've worked on a show as a producer, um, called Miracle Renegade. That is a spiritual therapy podcast, which I super, super liked.
0: Wow. Um, I love that though.
1: Yeah, super nice. I like Maureen Whitehouse um, and Christian Camarena are the host of that, and it's Maureen's been a, been like kind of like a spiritual guide for for 20 plus years, and Christian was one of her former, but probably still kind of clients. And it's their conversations about trying to figure life out. Super cool. I get to put music behind it and edit it and put it together, and like, um, so I don't. So it's a super diverse range of things, you know, from from narrative, you know, Brazilian Portuguese shows and. on domestic workers to spiritual therapy, to experience design, to anthropology, to Smithsonian stuff. So I don't know. I I love it all. You know, I I think it's just, there's so much to do and sorry, I've been talking a lot. That's a lot. No,
0: that's that all of it was so great to hear. And, you know, it sounds like you really have been able to carve out such like a niche for yourself where you're thriving and like doing what you love, but also like making a profession out of it. That's such, such a cool thing. And I, you know, I think you and I will have some like more off off recording chats about just in general like some podcast tips because I think you know I have I have a lot to learn <laughs> as you know just having this like as my solo show and you know like running it out of my apartment I definitely have aspirations like that just because I like you just love podcasting I love listening to podcasts I consume so many podcasts it is ridiculous like I just it's it's amazing it's yeah. become much better for me than tv I also get headaches like Mm. all the time and the zoom school has been really hard because no good it's like well i spend all day on the computer and then i want to take a break and i want to watch a tv show or i want to go on my phone and my head is just throbbing but yeah
1: podcasts are good for the brain
0: uh, yeah podcasts are good for the brain and so i don't have to like look at the screen too
1: yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a good, it's, it's nice. It's I mean, it's funny like now because I mean, I make my I make my shows out of my apartment too, so that that's that's yeah. fine <laughs> to do. Um, but it definitely is like uh, I don't have a commute. I work from home. I mean, I like yeah. before the pandemic, I work from home, so it's like uh-huh. um, that's I do I miss commute listening time. I guess so like that's oh, that's like the one thing I'm missing. Yes, driving
0: yeah. driving and going somewhere is like the best time to listen to podcasts. Or I yeah. love listening to them when I'm cleaning. I just always need music or a podcast going yeah, at all times right. <laughs> so I was listening to you in another episode of a podcast and you brought up that you've actually done a bit of teaching so I was kind of curious what perspective as, what perspectives and lessons you're bringing from your own creative work in the industry to help educate and like guide students and per- prospective anthropologists whatever field they may you know pursue
1: yeah. Um, teaching, I mean, education is like at the heart of what I, what I do, you know? Um, and I, I love teaching, you know, it's, it's on one level. I only don't teach because I never could get paid to do it. <laughs> um, which on, someone says that means you're not good at it, but that's not true. Yeah, um, no. the academic system is just has, has no easy ways in, um, which I'm actually, okay. I'm, I'm quite happy that I don't teach full-time, but, um, you know, similar to the, when I, I kind of like realize that there's a lot of value in bringing anthropology to podcasting versus bringing podcasting to anthropology. Um conference-wise, I realized that in similar with teaching, that's why I actually found I was able to I felt like do the most good. Um I have taught anthropology programs that you know I've taught uh, as as an adjunct in a, in a number of different schools like and I've taught, you know, anthropology 101, mm-hmm. um, archaeology 101, cultural anthropology 101. Um but I have also uh and like more recently, would teach in a design program. I taught in a design program for a few years and taught um, design research and design thinking and and design discourse, which is actually around helping design students make arguments uh, and like basically see their own perspective in the world. Um, and I've taught in, like in products and marketing classes at engineering schools, and I've taught um, civic and media and in, in participatory design um, for a master's program. And you know, so it's across these experiences, like it's been super interesting. And like, you know, teaching graduate students is a little bit different than teaching undergraduates, but at the same time, like, uh, the, there's such value in 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 opportunity in opportunity and seeing these cross spaces, these spaces of, of interaction and, and collaboration. So it's like having anthropology and civic design, having anthropology and design, having anthropology and engineering come together uh, is is I think really where sparks can fly. And so, what I would try to to kind of bring to student perspectives is is that we're trying to solve problems is. Actually, it's trying to help them realize this is how we like. The fact is that we can solve problems, and what is it that we're taking from whatever discipline we're using to then solve these problems, and how do these pieces fit together? Uh, you know, and for me, that was that was trying to fill in a gap that I saw with anthropology is that we don't like we get taught how to think well, but not how to do anything with it often. And and so to me, like when you bring anthropology into a conversation with design or engineering, the first question is well, why would you do that? What do they do together? You know, so the first question is how do they work together? In order to answer that question you have to be able to say here's the problems that we can solve and so just being being aware of that in like helping um frame things around solving problems uh, versus just kind of unpacking or learning for learning's sake which is important too but like mm-hmm. um you know let's let's get a pointer engineering is always like well i'm trying to make something optimized or make it more efficient or trying to fix something and make it work better uh, design is similar and to me, I think anthropology can do that well, and it can actually inform these other disciplines in incredible ways. Of like, how do we design for and with people, right? Uh, and so, to me, that's been such a big, a big piece, you know. And like in the civic media program, for example, when I was teaching master students. Um, you know, we we're doing participatory design, which is designing for, with, and alongside stakeholders. And the the lesson, the the week that uh, I got some of the biggest feedback that this is this is working from the students is when we did a project on aligning values with, with the outputs. And so like defining their values and the defining that their stakeholder and their, their people that are designing with their values and then aligning them. Like, do you guys care about trust or do you care about transparency or accountability or whatever it is? Um, and that was like, came from my anthropological training of like understanding how are we like representing the people that we're working with, you know? And so seeing basically that's what made design make sense to them, uh, was incredibly empowering to me, but then that, then. That taught me this is this is how we can empower and realize this is the power of these pieces together so um similar to your point of like your your class of of working with your students your your folks to say let's think outside of the box of just like what can we do with our degree or i think mm-hmm. it's this it's helping people realize that once you just ask the question of another discipline or another idea you have to be able to answer how do these work together and that's an incredibly liberating question you know because it's like it makes the ideas actionable and so a lot of it has been pressed i guess in that you know um you know, the other sides of it too, is like, you know, making them make a podcast or a website could be good. You know, I don't force people to make stuff. Um, yeah. but, um, you know, it's, it's, but it's fun. I like when they do that. I like when, you know, I'll, I would let them easily make a podcast for a final project mm-hmm. or stuff like that. You know, um, I'm on pause from teaching right now, you know, at the time of recording of this. And so we'll see if I go back at some point, but, um, it's, it's actually been helpful too. Cause my other thing is I realized after teaching for a number of years that it would be good for me to then not teach Work in industry because the lens is totally different, the speed is different, the output is different. You get paid for different reasons, um, and so that's stuff I can all take back to teaching later on too. You know, so it's like it it all it all builds on itself. I think.
0: Yeah, it'll it'll just benefit your future perspective. Yeah. So the panel that we were on together, which is called co- which is called um, increasing the visibility of. Oh, okay, <laughs> start that statement over. Okay. Um, you and I were on a panel together called um, "Increasing the Visibility of Anthropology," which was put together by Matt Art, um, featuring Amy Santee, Phil Surleys, Adam, and myself. Which, in case anyone's interested, you can find on YouTube just by typing that in, and I'll also like link it in the episode notes. But something that we kind of all like ended up throwing around as an idea, like at the end, was deconstructing this idea of like a PhD or master's thesis, and in su- instead like supporting these creative projects and extending the scope of academic products so I it it's actually like before I ask you like your take on it it's actually since then and like I have a couple other conversations I've had with people on my episodes and with other people in the field since then I've really been playing around with this idea oh and Gary is one of them talking about you know like Mm -hmm. the transitioning of like teaching and like putting out like educational modules almost that are different than a podcast episode like a podcast episode hits like a certain audience, but I've almost been thinking about how I can like address like a younger audience where like they're still learning like the tools of like, you know, even as simple as like hypothesis and what anthropology is generally and like human anatomy and so I have like this kind of idea in the back of my head that I'm actually super happy I'm going to actually be working on next year with a school is like this idea of how to teach anthropology to like younger than a younger than high school students so kind of like where where do I don't know what do you see as like creating you were kind of saying like you know you could see your class Creating a creative project, but I don't know how can we like further incorporate these like new ideas of you know creativity and design like into masters or PhD programs.
1: Yeah, I mean we we need to for one, you know. Um, I I will say like I, I'm super bummed that it's like I don't I don't know what to do with my dissertation. I would love to make it into a book, but like that's you like you write a book. And then you have to translate it into a book if you want to publish it. And that's crazy. Like you like write a book length manuscript and then it lives in a library. Mm-hmm. Um, so if any listeners want to help me, help me do this then let me know. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, but seriously, I, w- I would love to help with that. But um, you know, other than that, yes, I mean, there, there is, there's so much we could do. Right. And so I think like there's kind of two like broad axes that I would, you know, say to professors or students to think about one is, you know, if it's a master's degree or, or a PhD project, or even like a senior thesis, it doesn't really matter. It's like, how do you demonstrate that you've mastered the concepts that you are learning, and then what are your goals with the things that you're doing, right? And so instead, then how do we just basically match the outputs with your goals? And I think that's not crazy. It's not that hard to do. Um, it's just like I, I will appreciate my my advisor Elizabeth Ferry. She she won for one of the classes that I was in um, during PhD. She let me um, do a podcast as my final project. You know, in like 2014, early on, and um, and I appreciate that. Um, but I remember she said she's like, "Yeah, you know, we could try that." You know, she, but she said I, d- I have to think about how to evaluate it. And I said, mm-hmm. "That's that's that's th- that's good." So you know, like, and that stuck with me because that's that's the question. If you're if you're a professor or you're the evaluator, um, it is that question of how do I, you know, if I have a paper, I can kind of go through it and are you hitting the points right? I mean, a podcast is the same thing. You just listen to it versus versus reading it on one level, um, but you know, contemplating, if the goal is to have your students or yourself demonstrate a certain level of knowledge, that's great. You know, so think about how would that be, how would you be able to do that? And like, could a painting do that? Maybe. It depends what you're trying to paint, right? I mean, a podcast seems almost easy, right? Compared to like making a visual demonstration or like, but I mean, imagine a museum exhibition, you could totally demonstrate your knowledge on something. Um, putting, I mean, honestly, putting together a like pitch deck as if you're like going to shark tank would be a really interesting way to say, I've learned these things. Here's the business (laughs) application of it. Uh, you know, so I, I think like there's, I mean, making a screenplay, I mean, there's so many, there's like so many, even writing, there's so many written ways you could even express Mm -hmm. the way that you you've mastered these pieces of knowledge. I mean, I would love to see a, a, a novella that like, is like ethnographic, right?
0: Yes.
1: Um, one time, I don't remember now what year, we're just going to say 2015, because I'm just going to make that year of everything, maybe 2016. We did, um, we did a panel at the American Anthropological Association meeting that we called Story Slamming Anthropology, Ethnography for the Rest of Us. And it was, uh, it was basically like we said, you can't write a paper, you have to write a story that's ethnographic, and you have to perform it at the, at the, at the panel. And and that was the criteria, and it was like super fun. It was a well attended event, and like I mean, it didn't like blow the, didn't change the universe or anything, but like, it showed us that there was like interest in in like, like let's be more literary. It's okay. Anthropology is incredibly literary, right? You read an ethnography, it's like, Levi Strauss, Claude Levi Strauss wanted to be a novelist, and he just failed, and then became (laughs) you know became an (laughs) ethnographer. I think I think seriously, like so, you know, it's like it's okay to be poetic. And Michael Jackson, not the pop singer, the anthropologist. the existential anthropologist, uh, is an incredible writer and like so poetic and Paul Stoller also. Um, and it's, so it's interesting, like there's so many, uh, really good writers out there that could like, just put these different pieces. I mean, even like Ruth Benedict and, and Margaret Mead, the way they wrote was, was fun, you know? Um, and the fact that Margaret Mead wrote for Redbook for years, you know, which is like old school version of Reader's Digest was an old school version of, I don't know, Medium, you know, that, like that tons of people read. And, And Paul Stoller now writes for, for, he does um, blog stuff all the time, you know, for Huffington Post and and Washington Post and stuff. So it's like, there's, there's so many opportunities to express this kind of work that like, it's, it's just like, why not do it? You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's, and it's, to me, it's so exciting. Like, let's get some, like, do an op-ed as your final paper. Awesome. Right. That'd be cool. That
0: is cool. I agree with that. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. That everything we talked about was, you know, so fun and so wonderful. And I really hope our listeners got something out of it. And definitely check out this Anthro Life. I mean, if you like my podcast, you're gonna love Adam. So here we go. And yeah, you know, do. maybe you'll see me on an episode of this Anthro Life in the future.
1: <laughs> you, in, you, in fact, will, listeners. We're gonna, we're gonna prognosticate the future here. Yeah, we will see, you'll see Gabby over there as well. Over here, <laughs> over there, over somewhere. Yeah. Yep.
0: Thank cool. you. Thanks so
1: much.